Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning, uh, for sure. And uh, we're going to be talking this morning about um, engaging and raising up uh, the next generation to know and love Jesus. And I had actually planned today's sermon months before I'd ever heard about Blue Sunday. Uh, matter of fact, I didn't know about Blue Sunday until about three weeks ago. Um, one of the families visiting with us uh, had brought it to my attention and realized that that was uh, today, the day that we would be talking about uh, what it means to invest in the next generation. And uh, I want to encourage you and maybe even challenge you, if this is the first time you've ever heard of Blue Sunday, um, go visit the website. And on the homepage, there's a video. It's a, a basically a dramatic um, representation from the perspective of a child of what uh, abuse does to the way a child sees themselves and the impact it has on their identity and the way they see the world and understand love and those sort of things. And so I just encourage you, I challenge you, if you're going to start watching it, commit to watch the whole thing. It's about, I think, 12 or 15 minutes long. Um, but uh, see how the Lord might stir you uh, to be an advocate for those who um, are in uh, really rough situations right now. And, uh, you know, in terms of adoption, uh, one thing to think about, I think typically when we think about adoption, we think about the way it might impact our families and our homes. Um, and that's only half of the equation. There's another half of the equation where there are truly children who are, um, their very existence is darkness, uh, pain, suffering, humiliation. And, and so just making sure we're prayerfully thinking about both sides of the equation as we think about what God would call us to do as a church. So um, I'm glad that you're here with us today. We are going to be talking about um, the flip side, our responsibility as a church to uh, invest in and raise up the, the next generation for Christ. And, uh, and I want to say this, that um, I think from the very beginning, um, we're, we're typically quick to, uh, to d- dismiss a sermon like today, thinking that it is um, simply for those parents who are struggling or parents with small kids and And so my prayer for us today is that God would expand our understanding of the responsibility of the church to engage in the future generations. This is not a sermon uh, for parents. We're going to be talking about parenting, uh, but this is not a a sermon simply for parents. If you are um, married and don't have kids, if you are, uh, maybe your kids are out of the house and you're a grandparent now, Uh, if you're single and in high school, if you are married and and can't have children or choose to not have children, um, this is for us. This is a message for, as we're going to see, the church and a responsibility of the church on behalf of God to raise up the future generation for Christ. And that's my prayer for us today is we wouldn't dismiss this uh, as, as simply parenting advice, though we'll be talking about that quite a bit. So we're going to start in uh, Titus 1. If you want to uh, grab a Bible and turn there, or your phone, your gadget, your device, go ahead and get there. Titus 1 and 2 is really where we're going to be for the next three weeks. And uh, so next week when we come in, I say turn to Titus 1. It's not a mistake. Uh, It's not repeat. Uh, It's going to guide our conversation for the next three weeks. So we're in a sermon series entitled A Church on Mission. And we've learned so far that until we are on mission inside the walls of the church uh, will never be effective being on mission outside the walls of the church. The mission outside the walls of the church is deeply dependent on how well we live the mission here amongst ourselves first. And so um, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the mission towards the next generation. We'll come back next Sunday. We're going to talk specifically about men shaping men's lives. And then we're going to come back on Mother's Day. We're going to talk about women shaping women's lives. And so today we're going to start, though, in a, in a really strange place for talking about the next generation. We're going to start by talking about elders. Titus 1 is where we're going to begin. So the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a pastor. His name is Titus. And he's given him instruction on how to set up the church. He's not writing from a dad, one dad to another. He's not simply giving parenting advice. He's writing from a, an apostle perspective to a local pastor's perspective. And in verse 5, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. He says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, 
so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, it might seem like a strange place to, to start in talking about kids' ministry, right? Sounds like a passage about old men and advice for old men. And what I want you to see throughout the context of Titus 1 and 2 is what, what Paul is doing is he's starting with the end game in mind. He's laying out the goal for spiritual maturity for every believer in Christ. I think one of the mistakes we make when we see the word elder or pastor or we hear the word minister is we think about a special group of Christians who are like the spiritual elite. Like these are the special forces in Christianity and they've got their own standard of expectations with God and, and he's, you know, he's really called and, and gifted them to something special. And so we, 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 we read the word elder and then we check out. We go, that's not for me. I'll check back in in a minute when, when, the, when, the, when the Bible's talking to me. And, and, and that's not at all what's taking place here. What Paul is doing is he's laying out the goal and the standard of every believer in Christ. And you're going to see that as we get into chapter 2 in just a minute. And so he's starting with the end goal in mind. I also want you to see something else. This isn't just what we're going to talk about today, a church-specific issue. Look at what he says here. He says to Titus, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, that you could put in place what remained. What was that? To appoint elders in every town. So it wasn't like there was a struggling church somewhere and they needed some advice. What Paul is saying to Titus, this is how we need to set up the church. So what I'm about to tell you, Titus, take that blueprint and apply it to every church in every town, which means what? Solid rock is included in this council. And one other thing I want you to see here, and probably most importantly, is what he says. He says, put in place what remain and, and appoint elders. Now, this word appoint is so important to understand. On one hand, it means to put in place, right? So he's telling Titus, as you're traveling around through these little churches, so Titus was probably like a circuit preacher, different congregations in different villages and little towns in the area of Crete, He's saying this, as you, as you live and you work amongst the believers, I want you to be looking for men who you can appoint to lead. But this word that we translate appoint also translates to make. To make. Because the reality is this, that he's saying to Titus, there's going to be some congregations you're going to step into and you're not going to see them. You're going to have a hard time finding men who meet these qualifications. And in those cases, Titus, get ready to roll up your sleeves and make disciples for Christ. This, this, this sounds remotely close to what Jesus told his disciples. Go make disciples of the nations. And so this commission for Titus is this, to look for spiritual maturity in the church. And when it's not there, you get ready to engage in making disciples. Now, this will give way to chapter 2, which we'll read in just a second. If you're taking notes with us, the first thing I want us to see is that every believer, every believer is called to grow towards the spiritual maturity exemplified in the qualifications of the elders. This isn't a, a separate set of standards for the, you know, the, the elite spiritual super Christians. Every believer in Christ is being called to this standard. Every believer. Now, chapter 2 is going to make this more clear for us, and this is where we're going next. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And so now what's going to happen is Paul is going to lay out a process for making disciples who are spiritually mature. And he's going to start with the pastor, with Titus, then he's going to work his way through men's ministry and women's ministry. And he's going to give this mandate to raise up future generations to the believers in the church. Look at what he says in Titus 2, verse 1. Speaking to Titus, here's your part, Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word also translates healthy doctrine. So if disciple-making is going to take place in the church, it has to begin, first of all, with teaching sound and healthy doctrine, laying a foundation for which people can grow from. And he says, Titus, that's your part. When you stand up to preach, when you teach, teach what is in accord with healthy, sound doctrine. And now he's going to shift his attention to the men and women in the church. In the ESV translation, you're going to come across the word older here. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that he's describing gray-haired people in the church, okay? Now, in fact, some mature believers in Christ are older and have gray hair. 
When you see the word elder, don't translate that as elderly, right? Like Daniel Henderson, one of our elders, uh, is 39 years old. So it, don't equate this to physical age. What's being referred to here when, it, when you see the word older or younger is, is really a reference to spiritual maturity. You can have gray hair and be a brand new believer. Therefore, you're an infant in Christ. You could be 24 years old and have been a Christian for better part of two decades, and therefore you're more mature, you're older in Christ. So look at where the Apostle Paul takes Titus next. Verse 2, older men, or spiritually mature men. Older men are to be, listen to this list, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Does that sound remotely familiar? Not word for word, but very similar to the qualifications for the elder. You see how Paul is, is calling all men, right, towards this spiritual maturity. And he's saying to, to Paul, this, or to Titus, this is your goal with the men in your church, that, that they truly all would be qualified to be elders. And then look at what he says next, older women. Again, he's not just thinking of old ladies. He's talking to the ladies in the church who are mature in Christ. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. That sounds familiar. Very similar to the qualifications of the elder. Why? Because it's the same standard that we're being called to as men and women in Christ. But then look at what he says. He begins in verse 4 to lay out how this is going to take place. And in verse 4, here's what he says. He says, here's how it's going to take place. He calls the women in the church to teach what is good, and so train the younger women. Train the younger women to what? To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Then verse 6, likewise. You see the word likewise? He's continuing the same thought. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Does that sound familiar? So he, here's what he's saying. Titus, here's how the church is going to be healthy. You teach sound doctrine. And then you make disciples in your church and you place spiritually mature men in the places of leadership. And then you have those spiritually mature men train and teach the younger men in Christ how to be mature. And at the same time, likewise, Titus, I want you to encourage the women in your church, the ladies who are mature in their faith, to invest in the next generation of women and disciple them and train them and teach them how to grow in Christ. And so you see him laying out this model for discipleship. Really important thing I want to point out here that I think we, we sometimes miss in the church, and I would say probably more so here in the South where everybody's a Christian and everybody goes to church. The question isn't, are you a Christian? The question is, what church do you go to kind of deal? You know, those of you from, from this area, you know what I'm talking about. I think one of the misunderstandings we have in the church when we read about moral standards, we read about God's law, is that somehow that morality is separate from the person of God. And one of the biggest mistakes we make, especially with our children, is we call them to an arbitrary moral standard that's separate from the person of Christ. Okay, Here, here's what I mean by that. When you read your Bible and you come across commandments and law and do's and don'ts, you're not, you're not stumbling across these random morals that God pulled out of nowhere and said, oh, this ought to be fun. Let's see if they can do this. What you're seeing is a reflection of the character of God. You read the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. Why? Because God doesn't steal. It's who he is. Don't, don't lie. Why? Because God isn't a liar. He speaks what is true. And so in the commandments of God, in the law of God, you see a reflection of his character. We're called to be holy because why? He is holy. A second thing happens when we peer into the law of God. We see who we are. Like James says, it's like looking into a mirror. And the law of God exposes our flaws and our, our deficiencies and our faults and our sinfulness and our rebellion. So what we're being called to here is not an arbitrary moral standard. We're being called into Christ-likeness. That's the standard for the elders. 
to be more like Christ. This is the standard that men are supposed to be discipling other men into is the character and the nature of Christ. Women, the same thing. We're not just, right, putting on Betty Crocker seminars trying to teach you how to cook. We're, we're teaching godly women how to become more like Jesus in their homes, their workplaces, their careers, or, or in the way they raise their children. The goal, again, is not arbitrary moral obedience, but it's Christ-likeness. And so what Paul is doing for Timothy is he's saying, here's how sanctification, discipleship is going to work in your church. Timothy, you, or Titus, you lay the foundation for Christ, and then you call the men and women to it. Mature believers are called to make disciples of the next generation. Mature believers are called to make disciples of the next generation by... Hit the pause button for just a minute. When we hear the word make disciples, that can be a little intimidated, especially if we don't really know what disciple making is. He used four different uh, words here to describe what disciple making looks like. His first command to Titus was to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. That word literally translates speak. That's one option, speaking, talking. Then later on when he's talking to the women and he tells them to to teach what is good. That's a totally different word. So we can speak, we can teach. And then he tells the women to train the younger women. There's another word that you can use. And then he, when he gets to the men, I like this. He uses the word urge. Right? So you can say, well, I'm not qualified to teach. I don't know the Bible that well. I can't be a disciple maker. Paul would say, Timothy, go, go or Titus, go tell the people who that actually, here, just urge. I mean, surely you can urge, right? What does urge look like? I don't well, know, it probably involves bumping knuckles, maybe a hug every now and then. Hey, how you doing? Encouragement, right? So there's different ways that disciple making can look and you don't have to be a Bible scholar to be engaged in it. You can speak, you can teach, you can train, you can urge as we invest in the next generation, right? Bringing them up in Christ to look more like him. And clearly this is a commission for the church. He hasn't mentioned parenting here, has he? Right? So you can say, well, I don't have kids. I'm out on this. Not according to God's word. If you're a woman and you're a believer in Christ, whether you have kids in your home or not, you're called to invest in raising up the next generation to know and love Jesus. Maybe you're a man here and you're saying, well, I'm just not good with kids. That's her deal. Or I'm just, hey, you're not off the hook here. Like, this is the way discipleship is supposed to take place. And you may not be good with kids. You may not even like kids, but there are young Future young men in our church who are three years old right now who need a voice of masculinity speaking into their lives, calling them to Christ's likeness. And so nobody, right, nobody's excused to back out of this equation right here. Mature believers are called to make disciples of the next generation by speaking, teaching, training, and urging them towards finding their identity in Jesus finding their identity in Jesus. Can I say this? Morality apart from the person of Jesus is dangerous. I'll even take it a step further. Morality apart from the person of Jesus is devastating. You're not calling your kiddos to become moral agents. You're calling them to be like Jesus. And if you don't anchor morality in the person of Jesus and it's arbitrary and somewhat existential, guess what? Your kids are gonna, your kids are gonna, they're gonna buck the system. They're gonna become rebellious to your moral standard for them apart from Jesus. And guess what will happen? A lot of them will, will either, they'll either succumb to people pleasing and they'll jump through the hoops long enough to get you off their back, or they'll grit their teeth until they turn 17 and three quarters and they can graduate and get out of the home and then what? Go live by their own moral code. I don't like your moral code. I'm gonna create my own moral code. And that's why morality has to be anchored in the person of Jesus. We're not just teaching our children to be moral. We're teaching them how to be like Jesus. Now, let me say this. One of the most, I would say, abusive things you could ever do to a child is tell them that they need eternal life and not teach them how to get there. One of the most cruel things you could ever do to a child is to tell them that they need eternity, they need to become like Jesus, but never tell them how to get there. And so in verse 11, 
the Apostle Paul is going to lay it out for us and remind us the only way to get to Christ's likeness is through Jesus and his grace. Look at what he says in verse 11. He reminds us of the gospel. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. What what was he talking about here? Is this the word grace just kind of falling from heaven and it's up in the sky and we go, oh, look, there's the grace of God. He's talking about the person of Jesus here. For the grace of God has appeared, right? Bringing forward to us, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So he's rooting this in who Jesus is. And then look at what he says that happens. The grace of God then in verse 12 trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What parent among us doesn't want that for your children? Amen? I mean more than a clean room. I want that for my boys. I don't even care if they chew with their mouths open if we can get here. Right? We, we, right? So, but here's, the, here's where we muddy the water. When in our own homes we emphasize more the manners and what it means to be good and polite and de-emphasize the law of God and Christ's likeness. What we're doing is we're calling our children to be conformed to our image and not the image of Christ if we're not careful, right? Because you have rules for your house and you teach your children certain manners. Some of you are yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir families. Some of you are eat with your elbows on the table. Some of you are not. And so what happens is if that's the moral code for our house, our children grow up and then they go spend the night with somebody else and they go, oh, wait, they've got a different moral standard in their home. They let us eat with our elbows on the table. Nobody's on my back. And and so then it becomes somewhat existential and arbitrary what morality is. And if we're not careful as parents, when we get frustrated with our kids, what we're saying is, what, you're not meeting my expectations and you're not measuring up to my image. And we'll take the image of Christ and de-emphasize it. And we'll call our children to, to our expectations and not his. So we've got to be very careful. And we're going to talk about in just a minute the difference between obeying the rules of the household versus obeying God. We've got to be very careful here. So Paul says to to Titus, Titus, here's how discipleship's going to work. The grace of Jesus is going to train them. There's no other way to get there. It's like telling them to go find eternity and not telling them how to get there. If you do not teach them the gospel... It's the grace of Jesus that transforms us. And which one do you want, parents? Do you want children who renounce ungodliness or children who obey their manners? Now, 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 young people in the room, can I talk to you for just a minute? Listen, your parents are for you. And when they're teaching you manners and how to be polite, pay attention. That's going to go well for you, okay? Learning to chew with your mouth shut is going to help you get a date later in life, Okay? Right, learning how to bathe and brush your teeth and comb your hair and match your clothes, that's going to help you get a job later in life. So, so, like, listen to your parents. It's good. We're going to see from Colossians. Obey your parents in these things. They're, they're trying to help you out. You're going to roll into your first job interview looking nappy and your hair is going to be all messy and, and you're not going to get the job, okay? But let's don't mistake household rules of politeness with the law of God. I want to read something from a book entitled Give Them Grace. This is an Elise Fitzpatrick book. Um, You can find this book on our website in our recommended book section. Um, I really, really appreciate this work that she has done on how to infuse grace even in discipline in the home. And so I highly commend this book to you. I'm going to read a few quotes from this book to kind of help us make this more practical. How the grace of Jesus trains the future generations. I want to begin with a conversation about the difference between um, calling our children to obey our rules versus calling children to perfect righteousness. Here's a quote from Elise Fitzpatrick. She says this, we're talking about the difference between obedience and righteousness because the categories make up the primary curriculum of what we teach our children every day. Every word we say to them during the day will be shaped by our view of their ability to be good and how to get them there. Every responsible parent wants obedient children. 
But if we're confused about their ability to be good, we'll end up lying to them about their desperate lostness outside of Christ, and we'll tell them that they can be good and they can obey God's law. It's a significant difference between discipline and calling your children to obey God perfectly in righteousness. So let's talk about discipline for just a minute. Different philosophies on discipline, different modes for discipline. We're not going to get into that debate. But can I be honest with you, from a gospel perspective, what discipline does do versus what it doesn't do? You will never discipline heart change in your children. You can't do it. You cannot change your child's heart with quiet time. At most, you'll modify behavior. At most, you'll modify behavior. If you're, if you're a fortunate one, if you're like the rest of us, you're going to keep trying this and you're going to try that, you're going to try this, you're going to try that, and you're going to feel like a failure. There's a reason for that. Okay? Discipline cannot change a child's heart. Only the goodness and the love of Jesus can. But let's talk about what discipline is for then. We're, we're called to discipline our children. God disciplines us. In its purest form, you know what discipline is? It's a tool to teach your children that there are consequences for choices and actions. That's what it's there for. When you say to your child, listen, here's the rule, don't do this. If you do this, here's what's going to happen. Kudos to you parents, by the way, who, who follow through, even when it's hard, okay? But here's the thing. If it begins to drift into anger, Stemming from frustration, what are we frustrated with? Their heart isn't changing. I told you if you did this, you would get this, and, and, and it's not fixing you. Why? Because you can't change a child's heart through discipline, but you can educate them. You can help them understand that there are consequences for your actions. Uh, parents in the room, you ever find yourself threatening to take away something good and fun that the whole family is going to do if they don't change their behavior and do this or don't do that? And then all of a sudden, what? They don't meet your standard, and it's a dilemma, right? Man, I already bought tickets to the movie. Why did I have to go and threaten that I wasn't going to take you to the movie? You ever, you, how about siblings, right? You're going to go do something fun with your kiddos, and one obeys and the other one doesn't. Now you've got this, like, huge dilemma. What do we do now? Kudos to the parents who stick to your guns, who teach your children. There are consequences for your actions. Again, not rooted in anger, because if it's rooted in anger or frustration, then what? We're mad because their hearts aren't changing. I'm going to share an example. And by the way, um, it's quite humbling to be talking to you about parenting as a failing parent, okay? And so um, occasionally, occasionally we almost get it right. Uh, this, this is an example. This last Friday, um, I was picking up both boys from school, and I laid out in the morning time what the expectations were for the day, and that if they met the expectations... I was going to take them to get some melt ice cream. This is not just ordinary ice cream if you haven't experienced melt ice cream. There's something just a little extra special about melt ice cream. And my boys know it by now. They, they've caught on. And so they were fired up on the way to school. Melt? Yeah, daddy's taking you to melt. Can I pick my flavor? Yes, you can pick your flavor. Cone or cup? I don't care. You can drew it all over yourself. I don't care. But here's the expectation if you want melt, right? So what we do, we lay out the expectations. So I pick up the first kiddo. He jumps in the car. How was your day? Good. How did it go? Slides me his report card. Everything went well. Perfect. And then he said to me, out of fear, but daddy, what happens if Calvin had a bad day, my other child? Will we still go to Melt? And so I was in a dilemma because <laughs> there's a good chance. I'm just going to say it. The other one didn't meet standards. And, and, and it struck me that he was fearful, right, that his reward was going to be based on what the other kiddo did. And I had to, in that moment, make a promise to him. What did Daddy tell you this morning? You said you would take me to melt ice cream if I met this expectation. I said, absolutely, you and I are going to melt, okay? Now, whether he goes, whether he gets to eat ice cream or not, it depends on how his day went. And so we go and we pick up little brother, and little brother had a rough day, okay? I mean, he's mostly an angel child, but occasionally has a rough day. And so um, he gets in the car, and, and now he doesn't even, like, tell us how, he, how his day was. They do the color chart. He, like, he gives me the first letter of the color. So, like, how was your day? He looks at me, and he'll, he'll, like, he'll write it in the air, an R for red, right? He's so careful that we don't just, like, root our child's identity and their performance there. But I had made a promise, right? If, you, if this happens, you don't get to go to melt. 
And so he said, but Daddy, can I still go to melt ice cream with you? I said, you get to go with us, but you don't get ice cream. Just brokenness. It was so hard. Why? Because I want good things for him. Like, I want him to experience the goodness, but I had made a standard, and I had said there are consequences for your actions, and now I have to follow through. You see, that's the heart of discipline. It's not that we can, in our, our, our anger and our frustrations, change our children's hearts. It's not. That should cause us to be much more patient in discipline. I'm just here to educate you. Whether you catch on or not, right, I can't control that. Right, I can't. I can't change your heart, but I can educate you, and I can be consistent, and I can continue laying out the standard, and I don't make, I don't make these um, idle threats, but I truly tell you what the consequences will be, and then I, then I carry it out. Well, that's discipline. But what we're talking about here is heart transformation, the grace of God transforming us and training us to renounce ungodliness. I can't do that with melt ice cream. I can't do that by timeout or spanking or grounding or taking toys away or, or right, pulling, throwing the electronics in the trash can. I cannot do it. But for the grace of God. Colossians 3 gives us some great counsel on this, um, starting with kids. So if you're, again, if you're a kiddo, let me give you some good counsel here. Uh, Colossians 3.20, first to children, says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So we don't necessarily obey our parents just to please them or make them happy. It pleases the Lord. Parent, or kiddos, listen, your parents are for you. They are. I know it's hard to believe it, but they want good things for you. Do they always give you perfect wisdom? No. But when they tell you to go brush your teeth and take a bath, that's a good thing. Children, obey your parents. They want good things for you. But parents, this comes with a warning. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This idea of, of provoking is, is, is continuing to poke and, and stir up anger in our children, rebellion in our children. We engage in discipline with emotion. We provoke and we stir them up. And they either become more, more um, rebellious or they become incredibly defeated and discouraged. So even in our disciplined parents, we're to be patient, long-suffering, not removed from grace, at the same time consistent. Now, I think what helps us understand what we're going, what we're going today is this, is understanding that what our children need is the same thing we need. See, there's a great hypocrisy when we call our children to a standard that we ourselves are not meeting, and then when we lash out at them or parent in frustration, do you, you feel the hypocrisy in that? Have you ever caught yourself expecting something of your child, right? a standard that you yourself aren't actually meeting? And so let's talk for a minute about making mistakes as a parent. I want to continue on again from Give Them Grace. This is a, a quote. Elise Fitzpatrick says this. We as parents, we need days of failure. Because they help humble us, and through them, we can see how God's grace is poured out on the humble. And she goes on to say this, the weaknesses, the failures, and sins of our family are the places where we learn that we need grace too. Where are my perfect parents real quick so I can see where you're at? Just raise your hand real quick so we know. Matter of fact, if you're a perfect parent, if you want to slip out, the, the imperfect parents and I will handle the rest of this, okay? You're good. No? We need grace too, don't we, parents? What do you do with your mistakes? What do you do when you do respond in anger and you realize, oh gosh, I was trying to change something I can't change? She goes on to say this. It is there in our failures. It is there in those dark mercies that God teaches us to be humbly dependent it is there that he draws near to us and sweetly reveals his grace. Parents, we need grace too. Now, let's talk for just a second about the balance between law and grace, can we? And when I say law, I'm not talking about manners and being polite, okay? Let's set that conversation aside. You figure out what that needs to look like for your household. Try to set your children up well. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is God's perfect righteousness in the law versus his grace and the balance between the two. Now, here's the thing. 
if in our households and in our church and our teaching, we land hard on the law with very little grace, guess what we're going to do? We're going to raise up a generation of Pharisees. We're going to raise up a generation of rebellious adults, right? Because here's the thing. They're going to, really early on, they're going to try to figure this thing out. From a selfish perspective, what do I have to do to get what I want? Well, I don't want mommy yelling at me. So in order to get mommy to not yell at me, I've got to make my bed. Because mommy yells at me if I don't make my bed. If, if I don't want daddy to be angry with me and to, you know, to, 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 to spank me out of anger and frustration, if I don't want that, what do I have to do? And, and so what happens, they slip into what? Behavior modification. What do I have to do to get what I want? And so what we'll get are people pleasers. You want people pleasers? That's how you get them. Uh, you can also get this if your kids are incredibly bright and manipulative. They'll figure out how to fool you and get what they want through doing what you want them to do. And so, see, we don't get real heart change that way, do we? The only way to get real heart change is through the, the goodness of Jesus. And so the law is good, but too much law with no grace, and you'll, you'll wind up with legalists or with rebellious hearts. Now, what happens, though, if we err on side of grace with no law? And basically, we teach them what? Morality is existential. You decide what morality is for you, and you go do it, and and, and so since God is so rich in grace, you do what you want, it doesn't matter. And then our, our children grow up, what, with no understanding of the character of Christ, right? No understanding of, 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a, a, more, a morality that's rooted in the identity of Christ. And they'll end up, what, doing whatever they want to do. And so we need this balance of law and grace in our homes. You know what the law of God does for us and for our children? It reveals our... Um, Inerrant dependency on Jesus. If you think I'm wrong in this, take, go back to the Ten Commandments. Maybe in one of your quiet times this week, go read and meditate on the Ten Commandments and then look back over the last seven days and kind of rate yourself. How well did you do? Score yourself. Right? That's what the law does. It reveals our deep dependency and need for Jesus. And if, if, if the Ten Commandments doesn't work, Go to Matthew 5 and 6 and, and read Jesus' commentary and teaching and interpretation of the Ten Commandments and then see how well you fare. Well, I haven't murdered, Jesus said, really? Have you slandered? Have you harbored anger in your heart towards your brother and sister in Christ? Well, yeah, I've done that, but that's not the Ten Commandments. Jesus says what? Oh, that's murder too. Well, you know, the Ten Commandments said, you know, don't, don't cheat on my wife. I haven't cheated on my wife. Jesus will say what? Well, let's talk about what you've been thinking about what you've been exposing your mind to, because guess what? That's unfaithfulness too. And so that's what the law does. It reveals our deep need for grace. And grace comes in and rescues us from that desperation, our only hope. Now, what I want to do now is I want to just read one last quote, and uh, then we're going to get to hear from uh, Jamie Curtis, our kids minister, on this topic. This is the last quote I'm going to read this morning from Give Them Grace. Begins here, most of us are painfully aware that we're not perfect parents. Amen? And we're also deeply grieved that we don't have perfect kids. But the remedy to our mutual imperfection isn't more law. Even if it seems to produce tidy and polite children, Christian children and their parents don't need to learn to be nice. They need death and resurrection and a savior who has gone before them as a faithful high priest who, has, who was a child himself and who lived and died perfectly in their place. They need a savior who extends the offer of complete forgiveness, total righteousness, and indissoluble adoption to all who believe. This is the message we all need. We need the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel. Children can't use the law any more than we can because they'll respond to it the same way that we do. They'll ignore it or bend it or obey it outwardly for selfish purposes. But this one thing is certain. They won't obey it from the heart because why? Because they can't. That's why Jesus had to die. So let's be cautious, right, that we're not trying to conform our children into our image or into this 
false idea of what it means to be a good boy or a good girl. Let's call them to the character of Christ. And when they realize how far away that is from their ability to get there, let's show them the grace of God that bridges the gap. If you're taking notes with us, the last fill in the blank. It is the grace of God, and I would say this, only the grace of God that causes us to be more like Jesus. And here's how it works. By satisfying our deepest need and filling our hearts with a gratitude that convinces us to let go of the things of this world and pursue Jesus' likeness. I like that, that word combination, Jesus' likeness, because that's what we mean when we say godliness. We mean God-likeness. And so this standard of godliness is just not this arbitrary moral code. It's rooted in the person of Jesus. And so ultimately, only the grace of God can truly transform a heart and call an individual, right, to become more like Jesus, Jesus' likeness. I want to take a minute just to let you hear from uh, Jamie Curtis, our kids minister, recorded an interview uh, yesterday during the air show, which was kind of tricky. And uh, I want her to just share a little bit about how we live this mission out here at Solid Rock. Well, good morning. I am here with Jamie Curtis, our kids minister. Good morning. Uh, ask Jamie to come share a little bit about how what we've talked about this morning, Titus 1 and 2, impacts the way we do ministry. Uh, and so, uh, Jamie, welcome. Thank you. Glad you're here. Um, Jamie, I'd like for you to begin by talking about the, the partnership between what we do here at the church and what happens in the home and how, um, how we as a community are responsible for leading the next generation to come to know and love Jesus. So if you would just share a little bit with us, I appreciate it. Absolutely. In kids' ministry, it's all about starting conversations. And so engaging the kids in conversation from the first time that they come into, into our building, that they start to study God's Word and they start to engage in conversation with their leaders, and with, with their peers. And what our goal is is that we want them to have questions, to seek, and to take those questions home and engage in conversation with their parents. And sometimes that conversation starts at home and they have a question about something they were studying or um, they asked a question at, at church and they heard an answer they wanted to share with their parents. And um, sometimes those questions actually turn into those crucial conversations where they start asking questions about salvation, about baptism, about um, maybe understanding what one of uh, the parables mean that they learned about. And, and our goal in kids' ministry is really to take those conversations as opportunities for for teaching, for modeling for them, for engaging with the parents and giving giving parents a, a, an, an appreciation for going to God's Word and giving them tools to point their children to God's Word and to study together and to really uh, just continue those conversations and to, to grow in their understanding of who Christ is and, and God's plan from creation to redemption. That's awesome. So kids' ministry isn't just telling our kids what they're supposed to believe, but it's creating conversations. Absolutely. That that we hope one day will become conversations between them and Jesus. Definitely. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, well, we talked this morning, Jamie, about how um, there's, there's, a, there's this reality that the, the toddlers in our kids' ministry right now will one day be the leaders of the church. Yeah. And so could you share with us a little bit about how we're already preparing them uh, to be the future leaders of the church? Absolutely. Um, so it starts with modeling for them what it looks like leading. So they see leaders who've been called to serve. They see sometimes it's their parents or, or just other other people in the body who've come who've been called to serve, who engage with the with the children in conversation, who model for them prayer, who model for them the fruit of the spirit, and who really show them what it looks like to love Christ and to leave for Him. And sometimes what that looks like is uh, the kids stepping up and, and saying, I'd like to lead prayer today, or um, in, in a large group setting, giving them an opportunity to stand up in front of their peers and, and read straight from God's word, read the scripture that we're going to learn that day, and, and just giving them the confidence, instilling in them um, that they have the knowledge of Christ and that they have the capacity to lead, that it's something that they see uh, the adults around them and the, the youth leaders around them doing every single day, and it's something that they are, are going to be raised to doing and, and, and looking at and trying to do and, and to do well, hopefully, when they're, when they're older. Yeah, it's so encouraging as a parent when my boys come home from church and tell me about what you guys were talking about in the other building and how oftentimes it's the very same thing or very similar to what we're doing or talking yes. about over here. Yeah. And so I can definitely see those seeds being planted for the future. Um, well, Jamie, just wanted to hear from you more of, of um, as a parent, 
if I could, because the, you know, as we talked about this morning, um, the difference between trying to modify our children's behavior behavior versus watching Jesus truly transform their hearts, um, and that's you know, it, parenting can be um, uh, can be a little daunting at times, especially when we make mistakes. Yeah. And so, if you could just, as a parent, share about how the gospel impacts the way you parent your kids at home. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. Well, um, for for me as a parent, it's all about grace. It's all about having my children understand grace. And not only understand grace, but understand that we are all sinners, that none of us are perfect, that we all make mistakes. And then taking those opportunities for the time that there's there's interpersonal conflict or, or they just mess up or, or I mess up and, and walking through that with them and showing them this is why we need a Savior. This is why we need grace. This is why we ask for forgiveness. This is why we extend forgiveness. And this is how Christ modeled that for us. And really just having them understand that that free will that God has given us um, and how he created us in his image allows us to make choices. And that when we don't make the right choice, that, we're, that we accept God's grace and that we also give forgiveness and, and, and just modeling that for them, really walking them through that and helping them understand. That's awesome, Jamie. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm sure you're a perfect parent. You've never made mistakes. <laughs> oh, um, right, do you ever have to ask your kids for forgiveness? <laughs> I do. I do. And I think it's it's powerful to them when they see their parent uh, because it, it puts you in a state as a parent of really being humbled. And it models for them that, you know what, I'm not, I'm not always right. I'm not always perfect. But walking through that and, and expressing it to them and articulating that to them that, you know, this is sometimes, sometimes mommy messes up. And this is why uh, we come and we ask for forgiveness. And that's just exactly why God sent Christ for us. Well, that's really good. It's encouraging, too. And we, uh, we want our kids to, to mind. We want them to behave. We want them to obey. Um, you know, but the reality is they're going to make mistakes, and so when we are able to humble ourselves and admit our mistakes, it leaves room and it, it teaches them what to do with their mistakes, yes. rather, than, yeah. rather than hiding them, suppressing them, but uh, it, it teaches them to humbly own their mistakes, which um, obviously is the place where Jesus really transforms our hearts. Absolutely. So, well, thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. Uh, I'll let you get back to kids' ministry. Definitely. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All thank right. You. Thanks. Bye. All right. Um, I would say this, um, parents, one of the greatest spiritual treasures you can give your children is teach them what to do with their sin. You want your children to renounce ungodliness and the things of this world? Teach them to bring their sin in faith to Jesus as their only place of rescue. Now, what's interesting, though, is this text today, didn't talk, it wasn't about parenting, was it? It was about raising up a future generation in the church, which means that now we're, we're all on the hook. We're all on the hook to be involved in this. Let me just give you a few ways that you can get more involved in our mission to raise up the future generation. The first way, and the most obvious way, is serving. Okay, And I'm not beating the drum because we just got to have more kids volunteers. We, we need more kids volunteers, but that's not why we're doing this today. So serving is a really important part about what Titus is instructed to do here. Teaching, helping. Um, I want to let you know there are so many other ways to get involved other than teaching. There's so many other different support roles you can get involved in, the kids' men, from check-in, from uh, doing art, you know, crafts and setting things up, room helpers, lots of ways you can get involved. Um, student ministry, uh, lots of ways to get involved with our junior high and high school students, being a small group leader, uh, helping transport students to camps and retreats and back and all that kind of stuff. Tons of ways you can get involved there in serving. Um, I want to say this too, you may not even realize it, if you give here to the general fund, you're investing financially in the ministry. Part of what we receive in our general offering is set aside uh, to, to do ministry with the next generation. Um, uh, in addition to that, praying, um, praying for our kiddos. Um, we do have a lot of uh, students and kids who come from homes of brokenness, some who, comes, who come from homes of darkness, and their time here on Sunday morning is the only light that they experience. And so praying for our kids, whether you have children at home or not, uh, praying for them, praying for their families. Um, in our current culture, um, splitting up and breaking families apart doesn't seem to be that big of a deal anymore. So we're seeing a lot of brokenness in homes, praying that God would help blended families come together and become one, praying for families to stay together against all odds in our current culture, praying for our volunteers. Um, how about this, just general encouragement? Uh, you see people with the turquoise T-shirts on? We've got a couple here in this service, and a lot of them are still serving in the other building. 
hey, when you see somebody with a turquoise shirt on this campus, would you do me a favor? Either hug them or high-five them or something. Just encourage them because it's hard work. I was talking with whoever worked with toddlers in the 10 a.m. service as they were walking back. I said, how was it? And I'm, this, this lady has got, I mean, she's got a lot of energy. She's like, whew, it was rough today, okay? But I guarantee you when her name comes back up on the schedule, she's going to roll up her sleeves and get right back in the trenches over there, uh, encourage our volunteers, love on them, hug them, high-five them, maybe even go and relieve them and help get involved in what's going on. Um, I would say this too. So I would leave here, uh, leave you with this. One, one of the things that it really encourages me and why I would come to this church, whether I was on staff here or not, is just the way that you treat my family as your family. Um, the way we interact with one another in the hallways here, when you stop and you recognize a child by name, whether you're involved in kids' ministry or not, like that's an important part of the equation, right? Because we're on this mission together as a community. So when you just do something simple like, you know, high five uh, Cash Martin and tell him, hey, I like your Batman T-shirt. Or you, you give, you know, give a, little, give a little hug to one of our little girls and tell her her dress is pretty. Even if you don't know her name, right? That's an investment and encouragement in the next generation because this is a community effort we're in on here together. So I want to leave you with that. I want to pray for us as the worship team comes forward. And uh, I want to say this to you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and uh, the grace of God is foreign to you and you don't know what it's like to be loved unconditionally, um, we want to introduce you to Jesus today. And uh, one way that that could happen is that you come in just a minute when we stand to sing, come to the back and grab one of our prayer partners or elders and let us talk with you more about becoming a Christian. Let us pray with you and, uh, and pray for you and over you. Um, you can make that decision where you're seated right now if you wanted to by simply trusting in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf because you're not perfect. He is. By faith, you can have his righteousness. And so if you would come to Jesus today in your own heart, trusting in what he's done for you, um, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's the grace of God that trains us. And so I want to make sure that you know that this morning. Let's pray together as we prepare to respond. Father, thank you that, that first and foremost, God, you, um, you show us what it truly means to love children. Jesus, thank you for your example here on earth that children were never an inconvenience to you. Despite what you had going on and the, and the agenda of your day, you always had room for the children to approach you and come to you. I pray right now that as a church, you would give us your eyes to see the future generation, that we could see the children in our, in our kids' ministry the way you see them. I mean, they truly are the, the future leaders of this church. We're gonna hand the mission of the church, God, to the toddlers one day. God, could we truly see the next generation the way you do? Father, for those who are in situations of abuse and brokenness and neglect. I pray, God, you would break our hearts 